You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperl. The shift to remote work the last three years has changed how and where people live, impacting municipal budgets that were set up for pre-pandemic demographics. On today's episode, we talk with Abby Ertz, Head of Product Strategies and Economics with FHN Financial, who also runs FHN Financial's Municipal Strategies Group. To get a better understanding of how the shift to remote work is affecting the municipal credit market and what flexibility cities have to adjust to this new normal. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Abby Ertz of FHN Financial. But first, a quick market update. Despite predictions that Chair Powell would address potential changes to R-star, the neutral interest rate, in his Jackson Hole speech, he instead emphasized a lot of familiar themes. The Fed will be data-dependent in its policy decisions. The PCE Supercore represents the Fed's best idea for underlying inflation. And price stability is essential to achieving the Fed's dual mandate. In early trading after his speech, market expectations now feel another hike in November is more likely than not. Other Fed officials provided mixed commentary this week, some believing the Fed should pause rates soon, while others believe more work needs to be done. Powell will have to work a bit harder to achieve consensus within the FOMC as the Fed reaches the fine-tuning stage of tightening. Treasury yields continue their upward climb during much of the last couple weeks, with twos nearing cycle highs at 5.04% earlier this week, and tens establishing a new cycle high at 4.35%. Yields fell a bit after some weaker-than-expected PMIs, but they're still significantly higher than a month ago. Some bigger-picture trends are driving longer-term yields higher, though, rather than any individual events. The bigger Treasury deficit is increasing issuance, the Fed is shedding assets off its balance sheet, and banks are selling security holdings, all providing upward pressure on yields. The last couple weeks have been relatively quiet on the data front. The most notable release was the July retail sales report August 14th which showed spending grew nearly twice as quickly as expected. It's still early in terms of available third quarter data, but the Atlanta Fed's GDP tracker is estimated 5.9% growth for Q3. This could fall a bit before the advanced GDP release at the end of October, but it's still poised to be well above the 1.8% the Fed estimates as long-run potential growth. In the housing market, prices remain elevated despite some of the highest new mortgage rates in more than 20 years. Inventories are low as people who locked in pandemic-era mortgages stay put. While the average rate on a new 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is above 7.5%, the average rate actually being paid by homeowners is closer to 3.6%. The lack of available existing homes has pushed demand into new homes, which should keep residential investment and employment in residential construction high. That's all for the market update. Now, our interview with Abby Ertz. Our guest today is Abby Ertz, Head of Product Strategies and Economics with FHN Financial, and she also runs FHN Financial's Municipal Strategies Group. Abby, good to have you on the podcast. Hey, Will. Thanks so much for having me. The topic today is the shift to remote work during the pandemic and how it continues to shape the municipal debt market. Um, We can all think of how our lifestyles changed during the spring of 2020, especially when it came to how we worked. I should note, of course, there were always jobs like 
construction workers, retail workers, or people in healthcare that didn't see much change in their need to work in person. But for those who could work remotely, as time went on, the reversion to what we might call pre-pandemic work life has been incomplete. And it's also really varied based on industry and geographic location. So Abby, when we think about the shift to remote work and then a kind of incomplete reversion back to pre-pandemic work life, how should we measure it? What are the different metrics that you use? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because there's been a lot of metrics kind of thrown out there in the industry. Um, but I think they all kind of paint a similar picture, which is if we're looking at, you know, office occupancy, badging into the workplace, office vacancy, any measure assessing workers coming back into the workplace, it's definitely showing, I think, a pretty near universal shift towards the negative in terms of people coming into the office less often. We looked at kind of every major U.S. city that could potentially be impacted from more remote work. And what we found is that office vacancies across the board have increased since pre-pandemic times. But I think when we kind of dive into the numbers and look a little bit more specifically, like you said, at, at specific geographies and specific industries, what we found is that while all cities did see an increase in vacancy rates, the amount of the rise in vacancies really varied quite dramatically across cities. And there are a couple, I think, common themes that we found as we've kind of looked at, at trends in these cities. I think one big thing that's really dictated the trend to remote work is the concentration of these knowledge-based industries. So think of it as tech or finance, kind of these professional services industries that can, you know, more easily work from home. So places like San Francisco, New York, even Austin and Seattle you know, other big kind of tech hubs um, are among the cities that have seen these biggest increases in vacancies. Another thing that we've seen, which I think makes a lot of sense, is commuting. So places where there are higher employment to population ratios. So in other words, just kind of a measure of how many people are kind of working in the city but live somewhere else where there might be a longer commute. Those are places that have also seen this big rise in vacancies. Another big thing, again, that I think makes a lot of sense is cost of living. You know, if you're looking at a neighborhood that has very expensive house prices, very expensive rents, those are also places that I think I've seen a dramatic shift in um, people no longer working from the office and maybe moving to the suburbs or somewhere else. So I, I want to kind of address two different scenarios that I read a lot about, um, especially in the earlier years of the pandemic. To your point, places like San Francisco and New York have the composition of jobs that would be very flexible with remote work. Um, and they also have, you know, they're cities with a higher cost of living. So the way that I, I see it, there could be two forces in this remote work bucket. The first is a worker for a tech company in San Francisco that then moves to Boise, Idaho or Butte, Bozeman, and is just working remotely for a, a Bay Area based company. But really, you know, they're paying taxes in Montana or Idaho. And then the second kind of scenario is a term that I've heard described as the donut effect. And that kind of describes my situation, in the pandemic, which is rather than going into the Midtown Manhattan office, I worked for my apartment in Brooklyn. And that does mean that I was now uh, buying lunch in a different part of the city, 
but uh, my sales tax for that lunch was going to go to the city of New York no matter what. And I was still paying income tax to the state of New York. So, you know, are there different ways that the, the kind of shift in remote work can impact cities differently um, because maybe they just moved to the suburbs, but they're still in the same kind of general geographic region or they could move cross country entirely? Yeah, I mean, I think you've really nailed kind of what the conversation is all about in the muni market right now. There's kind of two dynamics at work here in the muni market. One is something that's really predated the pandemic, which is the shift of population away from the big expensive cities and states, typically in kind of less desirable climates, to less expensive you know, states that may have kind of a better quality of life. This is why you've seen so many people move from the Northeast to Texas and Florida and the Carolinas, even places like, you know, Boise, Idaho, that have a much lower cost of living and excellent quality of life. Um, And so I think that's something that kind of got supercharged in the pandemic. It was, you know, a force already at work. Certain industries kind of allowed people to leave the state altogether and kind of work fully remote. Um, I think that's something that kind of got accelerated in 2020 through 2022 and even beyond. The second dynamic is also something that really predated the pandemic. I think we saw kind of this suburbanization kind of happening in the U.S. where people were moving from the big expensive cities out to the suburbs for, you know, the reasons we've all talked about. A bigger house, um, more green space, maybe a cheaper mortgage. And that donut effect that that you're talking about, the hollowing out of kind of the commercial core, the urban core, as people kind of migrate out to the suburbs and exurbs, that's really the dynamic that I think is kind of shaping the municipal market post-pandemic. And the reason that's happening to such a large degree is most industries aren't offering fully remote work. Really kind of the name of the game these days is this hybrid work week where maybe you're still getting called into the office, but it's only two or three days a week. So that type of arrangement isn't going to allow you to, say, move from New York all the way to Florida, but it will allow you to move from Midtown Manhattan to Westchester County or somewhere in the suburbs. So really, when we talk about muni strategy kind of in this post-pandemic phase, I think that's what it's all about. We're seeing you know, kind of um, a play to maybe overweight some of the suburbs and the exurbs that are benefiting from satellite offices and out-migration to those areas, whereas maybe there's more of an underweight to kind of the, the central business district. At this point, it's two full years after the vaccination rollout, and there's a lot of evidence that people are no longer really changing their lifestyles because of any lingering public health risk coming from COVID. So should we expect the work from home landscape to keep changing or is what we have now essentially the new normal? Yeah, I mean, I think that's another, you know, million million dollar question. I'll leave the prognostication of kind of the future of work from home to the experts. But, you know, I do think that there's a lot of evidence suggesting that kind of work from home in this, you know, remote work landscape is here to stay. I think encouragingly, we have seen a little bit of stabilization in things like office occupancy, obviously saw a dramatic decline in office occupancy kind of in those early pandemic years, but it has stabilized, maybe even improved somewhat 
I think, you know, there is an argument to be made that more people may be coming into the office as the labor market eases. Obviously, we've been in a a very tight labor market where employees have held a lot of power and and they've kind of been able to make the threat that if their employer isn't going to offer them these flexible work arrangements, that they can just go and do that job somewhere else that will, you know, provide that flexibility. So as the labor market stabilizes, we could see a little bit of improvement. But, you know, I think especially as analysts in the muni market, you know, one thing we all have to to come to terms with is we're not going back to pre-pandemic times. I mean, office occupancy was already in secular decline kind of pre-pandemic. And I don't see any major kind of return to work anytime in the near future. So that means that cities have a, a really big reckoning to do. I mean, and I think that conversation is already well underway in in a lot of these areas that are impacted, which is they have to reimagine and kind of reinvent the commercial core. No longer can we have these kind of office-centric, dense urban spaces are going to have to be reimagined to create more of kind of this mixed-use type of neighborhood where it's not just office, but also residential living and recreation space and retail you know, all combined in one that'll attract more people to those traditionally office-centric places. And like I said, that is happening. I think places like New York and San Francisco have created task forces. They've created legislation to kind of streamline approvals for rezoning a lot of this commercial space. A lot of the conversation right now is about you know, being able to rezone commercial space into residential or even hotel space. Um, So that's very much underway. I think the problem there is that's a big task. Um, It's not something that's going to happen overnight. A lot of experts have said that's kind of a four-year process between, you know, design and city approval and then the actual construction and redevelopment. So we're still probably a few years away from kind of retrofitting some of these commercial spaces into apartments and condos. So whether that's successful is still kind of yet to be seen, but I know there's tremendous effort um, at the city and state and even federal level to do this. But, you know, I think, unfortunately, what comes with that for municipal governments is higher liabilities. I think rezoning is great, um, but it's it's certainly not a silver bullet. It's going to be you know, logistically challenging um, to change these floor plans from office space to apartments or condos. And most likely that's going to require some subsidies on the part of governments. And in fact, I think a lot of these success stories and kind of this adaptive reuse have been in places where there have been large government subsidies to kind of fund some of this redevelopment. So like I said, from a credit perspective, it does pose some challenges. Um, Government debt will probably rise to fund this, but I I don't think it's an insurmountable challenge. I think that's a really interesting point um, to bring up the incomplete flexibility that cities have to adapt to this change. Because when people started to work remotely in the spring of 2020, um, or as they've shifted where they work, uh, they can kind of make that decision overnight as they choose. But cities, of course, just the nature of government can be quite slow. When it comes to the finances of cities. How have different cities decided to cope with this change uh, in that respect? Um, Because, of course, cities, as we've talked about, have um, experienced the pandemic shift differently, but they also fund their budgets differently. Is this something that cities have managed to adapt to or is adjusting their, their, their kind of 
funding structure also something that takes some time and we haven't been able to to see an immediate change? Yeah, I mean, I think you make another really excellent point, and I'm going to kind of build on your comment from earlier. You know, the political process to make these changes and just the construction process, is it's a very slow process. But fortunately for municipal governments, the revenue impact, believe it or not, is also a very slow process. The way that municipal government tax structures are designed really kind of delay the impacts of market value changes on the budget. You know, the assessment process, you know, if commercial property values kind of decline, you know, whatever it is, 25 percent, 40 percent overnight, that's not going to be realized, you know, that impact one for one by city government tomorrow. That's something that's going to take years to develop because the uh, process of reassessing these properties take on the short end, maybe a year. Um, many cities, you know, it's taking three, four, even more years for those changes in market value to show up in the kind of the tax assessment base. It takes even longer for them to receive those receipts. And then on top of that, you know, there are also structures in place to kind of smooth the market value changes over time. So I think a great example is in New York City. They basically smooth market value changes over a five-year period, which, you know, I think is smartly designed so that, you know, governments have time to respond to these types of large potential changes in commercial real estate values. You know, it gives kind of the political process time to adjust. There's also systems out there. I mean, San Francisco is probably the most unique structure in terms of how this could potentially play out for property tax revenues, which is, you know, they basically have this thing called Prop 13 out there in California that limits the growth in the assessed value base to 2% per year. But as we all know, the actual appreciation, you know, in the San Francisco uh, metro area in terms of housing values and commercial real estate values has far exceeded 2% annually. So what this means for San Francisco office properties is that they're oftentimes significantly underassessed. So in other words, these owners are paying taxes on a assessed value that is far below the actual market value of the property. So the way this works in actuality is that if a property hasn't been sold in a long time, once it changes hands, that assessed value actually resets to the market value. And so this means that they can kind of incur these significant declines in market value without actually impacting the property taxes owed. You know, there are numerous stories out, out there of how this works in the, in the favor of governments. But I think that even if we see kind of a, a commercial real estate crisis start to develop, it's going to take a lot of time for that to impact governments. The other thing I wanted to make on this point is you also have to consider, you know, office property values aren't kind of the end all be all for for government budgets. You know, they make up, you know, this subset of the total property tax base for most cities. Um, residential property actually represents the lion's share of property taxes in real estate. But there are also a lot of other tax sources that governments receive. They can get sales taxes, income taxes, hotel taxes. You know, and they also get other forms of revenues. They get federal funding, they have licenses and fees and all of these other sources that kind of contribute to the budget. So when you actually run the numbers and see what the potential impact to the budget could be, even in this kind of doomsday scenario for office values, it's actually a very, in my view, a pretty manageable impact. And so obviously, you know, 
we'll kind of have to wait and see exactly how it all plays out. Governments will have to make sacrifices. They'll have to cut department budgets. But at the end of the day, we're, we're cautiously optimistic that they'll be able to manage through this without any serious damage to credit ratings. Uh, you just mentioned um, federal subsidies, and, and it made me think about um, in the three big stimulus bills that now happened, you know, the most recent one two and a half years ago, there was a lot of funding for um, state and city budgets to kind of get them through the worst days um, of the pandemic. Is this something that is still impacting these budgets? Because then I feel at some point, some states had these massive surpluses, um, some time has gone on. So is federal aid in the last few years something that continues to cushion um, this change and, and smooth out any uh, you know growing pains, any adjustments to the remote work landscape? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, we've all kind of talked about it and the municipal market, we're kind of coming off of this golden age for municipal credit. And it's been fueled exactly by, you know, what you just referenced, which is this huge amount of stimulus that came both directly from the federal government um, and also indirectly in terms of the support to small businesses and, and residents that really fueled tax revenues that governments rely on through those pandemic years. So yes, you're exactly right. I mean, at the state level, at the local level, These rainy day funds, basically the savings accounts that governments maintain, are at historic levels. Upgrade to downgrade ratios, the number of governments that are getting credit rating upgrades relative to those getting downgraded, also at historic highs. So really, we've never been in a stronger position to kind of tackle the types of challenges that these cities are facing. I'll also point out that, you know, cities like San Francisco, New York, um, Chicago are kind of on the upswing because of those forces. But in many cases, specifically for, you know, cities like New York and San Francisco, these are also very high quality credits. I mean, we're not talking about these cuspy governments that are already kind of teetering on on the edge of insolvency. I mean, San Francisco, a triple A rated city, New York, double A rated city. So they're very, very well equipped, I think, to kind of tackle these challenges from a budget perspective. Now, I'm not saying that it's not going to come with some risk. I, you know, I think we all kind of see a little bit of downside to ratings, to prices. You know, I think so far the market has kind of ignored a lot of the risks in terms of commercial real estate and, and impact on governments. These credits are all trading very well still to this day. But like I said, I don't I don't think it's insurmountable. I think they have the tools to kind of tackle this head on. We've talked about how the different cities across the country have really varied in their experience of this. But I'm curious if there's anything um, worth noting about specific distress points within cities. So in New York City, where I live, um, I know subway ridership is definitely down. And of course, that is funded largely by people paying fares, the turnstiles. In, I believe, most jurisdictions, public schools are funded by property taxes. And so the shift towards remote work and as people change how and where they work, um, I imagine that the revenue impacts can have different impacts on certain sections of the city. Um, So is there anything to note about different parts of cities that we're seeing particularly concerning or particularly strong uh, in a broad sense? Yeah, I mean, another great question. And I think this speaks to kind of the diversity in the municipal market. I mean, this is not 
a homogenous market where we're just talking about, you know, the city of, of New York or city of San Francisco. I mean, there are all sorts of different credits that make up the municipal market that are located in these areas. And, and some are going to do better than others. And, and also they all really have different considerations in terms of the revenues that drive these entities and also the potential liabilities that might be involved. So, you know, to kind of answer your question on potential areas of risk, I think you hit on one which is public transit. You know, public transit is a very interesting story. I know in New York City with the MTA, I mean, that's been a very visible story in terms of the decline in ridership, the impacts that's had on just the broader metro area in terms of service levels, in terms of calls on, you know, the city itself and the state for extra revenue to kind of keep it solvent. But for the most part, actually, public transit systems throughout the U.S. are actually funded more from kind of broader geographic areas and actually tax revenue streams. So a sales tax or a property tax that, as you can imagine, will withstand kind of a commercial real estate crisis much better than the fare box revenues that kind of fund the operations of these entities. And so I think from a credit perspective, for the most part, they're fairly well positioned. But I think kind of the bigger risk that maybe public transit poses is the again, the potential liabilities, implicit liabilities for their parent government. So, you know, we've already seen this in New York, like I just mentioned, with state budget funds having to go towards the MTA, city budget funds having to go towards the MTA to kind of keep it afloat. You know, I think that's a continued risk going forward, how much the city and state in New York and other places is going to have to kind of cough up extra funds to to help keep public transit, you know, solvent. I think in some cases, there are certain entities where fare box revenues may be the source of funding behind these bonds. And in those cases, like the MTA, for example, you know, there could be some real credit risk for holders of those bonds. But I think for the most part, interestingly, there's very few credits that are kind of targeted at, you know, the central business district. You know, if you just think of of New York City, it's so much more than just, you know, Midtown Manhattan or the financial district. There are lots of neighborhoods that are still kind of thriving, doing very well, and and they provide an excellent offset to kind of the revenue decline that we're seeing in some of, you know, kind of the more urban office-centric areas. There are also lots of credits out there that may carry the New York or San Francisco name that actually span a geographic area that may include some of the suburbs that are benefiting. New York City Water, the authority that serves kind of the New York metro area, is a great example of that. You know, carries the New York City name, but it's not just serving the five boroughs. It's also serving parts of Westchester County and other suburbs. So that's another great way to kind of get that New York City kind of tax exemption benefit, but kind of mitigate the risks associated with, you know, work from home and the movement out to the suburbs. It sounds like you're quite bullish then on the municipal financial uh, landscape, that these city and state budgets are kind of not doing nearly as poorly as one might think, given the pandemic the last few years and this and the shift to remote work. So Over the next 6 to 12 months, what do you think are the main questions investors should be thinking about, especially when it comes to this work from home trend and how it's impacting municipal budgets? Yeah, I I think it's great that you worded that in in terms of kind of the 6 to 12 month timeframe, because I think it's actually all about that. I mean, 
this is going to be a process that takes time to, to play out. I think, you know, when we're talking about municipal bonds in some of these places that carry, you know, shorter maturities, call it three, four, or even five years, it's probably not something that we have to worry too, too much about. As I mentioned earlier, these tax structures are designed in a way to kind of delay the impacts from, you know, this commercial real estate crisis on government budgets. But, you know, over the longer haul, I think it's something that we have to take very seriously. I, I do think it's too early to kind of proclaim, you know, the outcome of work from home and its impact on cities. Like you mentioned, we're feeling cautiously optimistic that that governments can, you know, come out of this crisis well, maybe even stronger than before. But there's definitely some downside risk. And I think especially so just knowing that the market really hasn't been pricing in this risk. So when we're talking about kind of longer maturity debt in some of these areas, we do think that, you know, there should be some concessions for owning that debt. In general, I would say we feel much more bullish on the suburbs and the exurbs that we've seen kind of benefit from migration flows even before the pandemic. So that's kind of where we focused our, our own strategy is in not only the suburbs, but again, kind of the lower cost areas and portions of the South and portions of the West that continue to kind of benefit from migration flows. And we expect that to continue kind of in the, the post-pandemic phase. Abby Ertz, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Will. That was Abby Ertz of FHN Financial. We all know that remote work has changed so much of how we work and live, but I think it's really interesting to hear from Abby about how these impacts are felt differently across different cities. How the different population shifts and composition of jobs can be big drivers in how cities have changed the last three years. I'll also say that I was pleasantly surprised to hear municipal budgets are faring better than you might expect, whether it's from budgets being structured to smooth out revenue fluctuations or from federal support. Next week, Market Focus returns to the economic data, with July PCE released on August 31st and the August Employment Report out on Friday, September 1st. Along with the August CPI out September 13th, these will be the biggest reports shaping expectations going into the September 20th FOMC meeting. Market expectations still show a very low probability of the Fed raising rates by 25 basis points in September, But attention will be on the new dot plot from that meeting, which will signal where FOMC participants believe Fed policy will be at the end of this year and next year. The upward movement in yields the past month have moved the yield curve closer to pricing in the no landing scenario that's in our forecast. We still think the curve is at risk of further bear steepening from Fed funds going higher than markets expect and the Fed pausing for longer than markets expect. Fed funds futures show an expectation for rate cuts to begin June of next year but we believe the Fed will stay at its terminal rate through the third quarter of 2024. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Comperl, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. 
No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.